0: All you mothers, we want to just honor you this day. Uh, happy Mother's Day. With a job description like that, given the pay, it's amazing the species continues. Uh, but it's it's all thanks to the moms, and so we really celebrate you. And you know, anytime you celebrate something, there's always, always some who have some pain around that, uh, because maybe you were a mom, but you're not now. You lost your child, or you hoped to be a mom, but it couldn't happen, or any number, you lost your mother. And uh, and so while we celebrate the mothers in our midst, and uh, our podcasters, we also just to pray the healing power of God, and the love of God, and the comforting power of God to come to the hearts of those who need it, because God meets every need where we're at. Amen? Amen. I'm Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. Really good to see all of you here this morning. Glad you made the choice to come out and worship with us. If you're visiting for the first time, I want to give a special welcome to you. We're really glad that you're here, and if you're in that kind of weird mode of life where you're checking out churches and you want to find out what we believe and what we're trying to accomplish, stop by at the gathering area and the, the hub out there, those tables out there, and just tell them you're visiting, and we've got a CD and some other information we'd just love to share with you. Please turn off your cell phones, iPods, chainsaws, anything that can make noise, I'd really appreciate it, uh, it could be a distraction, silence them, and uh, if anyone with you starts to be a distraction, uh, we encourage you to take them out to the gathering area where you can still see the sermon on the big screen and be part of the service that way. Otherwise, if uh, this is your church body, I just encourage you to look at the the bulletin. We've got a lot of ministry going on, a lot of beautiful ministry going on here. And uh, please cover that in prayer. Because as I said last week, last week's message, a lot hangs on prayer. Amen? Uh, There's nothing of kingdom value that happens apart from prayer. Prayer is the gasoline that the engine of the kingdom runs on. And so we're always seeking people to cover every area of ministry with prayer. And if this isn't your church, you're just visiting, well then apply that to your own church. Because they need prayer. Uh, prayer is where it's at. So we are studying the book of Colossians. When we're not in a series, uh, we're coming back to the book of Colossians. And we're coming down to the last couple messages uh, in this book. So today, we're looking at Colossians chapter 4. We're entitling this message, Good Newsing." That's good news as a verb. Good Newsing," For reasons that we'll find out here in a moment. And uh, the passage says this. Paul says, Pray that I may proclaim it, referring to the gospel, I may proclaim the gospel clearly as I should. And then he says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Talking to kingdom people here. Be wise wise to the way that you act, how you conduct yourselves to outsiders, those who aren't in the kingdom. And make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Bear with me here for a moment. Abba, Father, as we come now to just examine your word, study your word, uh, I pray, God, for everybody in this auditorium and everybody listening through podcasts, that you'd open our hearts and open our minds to receive it. God, let it set a fire in us to do your work. Tear down strongholds and misconceptions and fears and buzzers that we might have around this topic, uh, that we could see the beauty of what you call us to be and what you, what you call us to share. God, for non-believers and non-disciples in our midst, I just pray that you'd use this message to draw them in closer to the kingdom. And for those of us who are committed to you, I just pray you'd use it to set a fire in us, uh, to make us your billboards, your advertisements, uh, to see this is a good thing, not a negative thing, but an opportunity and a privilege that we have as your people. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen. So Paul, as I said last week, he, he's talking about prayer. And one of the things he says is, I pray that I may the doors may open for me to preach the gospel, because when he's writing this, he's in prison. And so he says, pray that I get out of this prison so I can start preaching again. And then he says, pray that I could do it clearly. Which is interesting, because it means that the clarity of a preacher depends somewhat on the prayers of the people. So, as I said last week, if my sermons suck, it's your fault. Because obviously, <laughs> someone's not praying for me. I study, but you're not doing your part, so I'll blame it on you. But see, it just shows you how interconnected things are. Uh, Everything in the kingdom is positively benefited through prayer, and it's negatively hurt by the lack of prayer. So whether we can preach clearly or not, whether we can uh, have an intense, powerful, transforming worship service, whether we're doing children's ministry the right way and and impacting kids, whether we're feeding the people that that God calls us to feed and clothing the people that God calls us to clothe and help finding homes for those that we're supposed to find homes with, whether God's love is put on display to the community around us, it all is affected by prayer. Things genuinely hang in the balance on whether God's people pray or not. That old pious saying that prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. As nice as it sounds, it's a load of caca. Because uh, the truth is it does change us, but it's more than that. It changes things. It, it, we get to affect the way history flows. Our prayers make a difference. Things really hang in the balance. And so I implore us to be a people who take prayer very, very seriously. It affects things. It doesn't collapse all the other variables that affect things to come to pass. But it's a strong kingdom influence. It's powerful and effective, James 5.16 says. So be in prayer. So Paul says, pray that I can evangelize, that I can preach clearly. And then that thought now leads him to address the Colossians about the topic of evangelism. He says, and you be wise in the way you conduct yourself among outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. And he's talking about sharing the gospel. So The first word I want to say here this morning is that All Jesus' followers are called to be sharers of the gospel. The word gospel is is just the word for good news. In Greek it's euangelion. Uh, And and to share it is to turn that into a verb. That's what the New Testament does. To To share the gospel is to be sharing the good news. You're good-newsing. We're supposed to be good news by how we live and good news by what we say. And we're to be sharing this. We are called to be God's billboards. Paul says we're living epistles, living letters that are read by all people. We're God's PR department. The church is to be the means by which God draws people into the kingdom, like a magnet. The attractiveness of of our community is supposed to be something that those who long for it are going to gravitate towards it, and we're to be willing to live this way and then share uh, our our faith when, when the opportunity arises to make the most of every opportunity. We're called to evangelize, not just the special evangelists. They have a special calling. They're the ones who go out and preach and and whatever. But we're all called to be doing this, to have this in our mind. Now, for a lot of us, myself included, the word evangelize isn't a positive word. Uh, I don't associate it with good news. Uh, To a lot of us, the word evangelize is associated with awkward conversations, Trying to bend someone's arm, trying to sort of talk, you know, get them to agree with you, trying to jam your faith down someone's throat. Or maybe it's associated with handing out tracks on a corner, or maybe it's associated with somebody, you know, at the U of M preaching how everyone's a sinner going to hell or something like that. It's it's kind of awkward. It's not like hey, it just feels weird. Like you're in some kind of a, a turbocharged pyramid scheme. You know, it's a Jesus pyramid scheme, and there's pressure on you to sell Jesus or or you're gonna be in trouble. The the church I was first saved in, um seventeen. They taught that everyone's salvation is 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 well it depends on you. God leverages people's eternal welfare on whether or not you will share Christ with them. It wasn't just Christ in our case, because we thought we were the only ones on the earth who were really saved, and so so we had a special doctrine that we were supposed to be propagating, and so we had to evangelize everybody. And and if we did, their blood was on our hands quoting some verse from Ezekiel, I forget where it is, but the watchers on the wall, if you don't tell them about their sin, then their blood's on your hands. So I had this picture in my mind that on the judgment day, I'd be out there and there'd be all these people, all the people in my senior high class, and, and they would say, Greg, we would have believed if only you would have told us the truth. Why didn't you? And I'd say, well, I was watching football that day. Or I was having a bad day. I was kind of grumpy. I didn't want to you know, talk about it. And so they're going to go to hell because I was grumpy and I'm supposed to go to heaven and enjoy myself. And it was just not a very pleasant picture. but. See, always wanted to be consistent. I, for about a year, tried to live that out. If you believe that, everyone's eternal salvation hangs on you, well, you'll become rather obnoxious. <laughs> I, 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 I am, I'm sure. I set the record. Uh, the most obnoxious senior high school student in park history Uh, I brought my Bible to to school every day, and in between classes and during lunch, and oh, it's so embarrassing when I think back on it. It was just like, oh, why was I? I was so cool in 11th grade, and so dirty in 12th grade. Going to my 20th reunion was, uh, I can just picture people, I walk in there, and if they're thinking as I was in my final year at school, they want to steer clear of me, like, oh, here he comes, here he comes. So I want to like say, no, remember the cool rock trimmer, that, I, that big afro, that, remember that one, not not this, this senior high version of me, but they're all gracious and it went well. But see, here's the thing, we may have some buzzers around that word, but if you look at this passage and the New Testament in general, uh, evangelism doesn't mean anything like that. Collapse that picture, get rid of it. The New Testament presents us with a very, very different model of how we are to be good newsing, how we're to be bearers of the good news. And it has to just do with, with a lifestyle and a mindset. Paul says, be wise in the way that you conduct yourself without outsiders. So there's a, mind, a mindset there. And he says, make the most of every opportunity. When he says, be wise, basically what he's just saying is, remember uh, that you are a, an ambassador of the kingdom. Remember that you're just not part of the crowd. There's, there's always kingdom stuff happening. Remember that you're on assignment. Just remember your calling. Be wise about that. And and then then to conduct yourself in a way that's appropriate to the kingdom. And the kingdom always looks like the cross, right? It's always about self-sacrificial love. It's always about humility. And so this is something that never something we're supposed to put aside or check out. No, wherever we go, whoever we're talking to, whatever party we're at, whatever engagement, whatever social event, remember that you are the, the message of the kingdom. And so manifest the humility and the self-sacrificial love, the servant mindset of a kingdom person. And then be open to opportunities and make the most of them. We don't create the opportunities. God does. When we try to create the opportunities, it gets awkward. We become sort of selling Jesus Amway or something. And and it just gets weird. Our job isn't to create opportunities. It's to notice them. As we're living out the kingdom, wherever we're going, know that God is at work to create opportunities in people's hearts to make a very natural selling, sharing of the gospel uh, take place. We need to know that wherever we go, whoever we talk to, God has been at work in every person's heart from day one to create a space in them, a longing in them, a yearning in them for more. A yearning for, for the life that he has to offer. So Paul, in Acts 17, for example, he's talking to these philosophers. And at one point, he says this. He says, from one man, referring back to Adam, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And that God did this. He was working in the rise and falls of various nations so that they, referring to all the peoples of the nations, they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and even perhaps find him, though he's not far from any of us. And then he quotes two of their philosophers. He says, For in him we live and move and have our being. That's the Stoics who said that. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Uh, Just notice this. I love the fact that Paul, when he's talking to these pagan philosophers, he quotes pagan philosophers. Paul's apparently read these guys. Uh, That itself is an expression of humility. Because he's saying, you know what? We Christians don't have a corner on the truth. We don't own all the truth. The truth doesn't belong to us. No, we, we, we acknowledge truth wherever it's found. And since these guys don't believe in the Bible, why would he quote the Bible? That has no credibility to them. But they do believe in their own philosophers. So he quotes their own philosophers to make this point brilliant. you got to enter into the world of another if you're going to you know, be communicating with them, talking their terms. And then the point Paul makes is this. From day one, God has been working in every single human heart to create a hunger there that maybe will lead to a, a, them searching for him and maybe even finding him. And so far as that culture will allow it, God's trying to woo people. So this is a God, a universal God, who's working in every civilization, every nation, every heart, every person, Trying to get them to, 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 to come to him, yearn for him, uh, look for him. And see, so wherever we go, we, we can know that God's at work in people's lives. And our job is then to notice the ones who are, in fact, seeking for him, yearning for him. There's a hunger there. And when we see that opportunity, that's, there's a natural sharing that takes place. To whatever degree it is, is appropriate in, in that context. And when we do it that way, with that mindset and that lifestyle, Sharing the gospel is as natural as telling somebody about a cool band you just heard or a restaurant you just found that has awesome food. You're just a beggar who found some food telling another hungry beggar where the food is. Here's what I They ask a life question or express a life need, and you and you say, Well, here's what answered that question for me, and here's what met that need in my life. And the conversation develops. It's just natural. We don't create the opportunities. We can't make someone seek for God. We can't make someone hungry for God. It it doesn't do any good to badger them with it, that just hardens them in their position. If you're talking with somebody who has got no interest in the gospel, just love them, just serve them. You're sowing seeds, maybe 10 years later, someone else will share the gospel with them. Right now, they're not ready, so don't try to make them ready. That's The Spirit's got to do that. Sometimes I think, in like fact, I've known some people who just beat their head against a brick wall, trying to get this person, they really care about them, they're trying to get them to become a, a believer, and there's just you are hitting your head against a wall. Really pray about, is this is this the, the, the time you're supposed to be spending there? Maybe that would be a time spent better elsewhere where there's more fertile ground. And maybe several years later, they'll be open to it. Someone else will share the gospel. So we are to keep our eyes open as we share this, knowing that God is always at work in people's lives. It becomes very natural. Look at the way Paul, in the same passage, Acts 17, went on to share the gospel with these philosophers. Um, First of all, Acts 17 says, he went out and hung out with them on this mountain where they used to debate philosophical issues. Uh, it was called Mount Aragopagus. And that itself tells you something. If you want to sh- spread the good news, you don't wait for them to come to you, you go to them. Where do non-believers hang out? Uh, you know, where do they congregate? And so he went and put him, planted himself right in their midst. Now the first thing he saw, and this is important, is he saw all of these idols, these statues, that were dedicated to different gods. These philosophers wanted to make sure they covered their bases. Uh, they didn't want to leave any god out. They didn't want to take any god off. So they had all these statues to all these different gods. To a first century Jew like Paul, that would have been extremely, extremely offensive. I mean, this was violating the commandment against graven images. Uh, few things were as, as grieving to a Jew as, as statues of gods. Uh, that was demonic. It was just horrendous. It would have been as offensive to Paul as, say, some kind of barbaric ritualistic sex would be to us. It would just be gross. So Paul goes up there and he sees all of these, these statues. But he doesn't start reeling on them for their debaucherous paganism. Look what he does. Here's what he says. Because Athenians, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. I love that. See, he sees past. This would have been so... He probably was gagging. He wanted to puke. But he looks past that and he sees their hearts, a positive intent. They're trying. They're trying with the best they got. So he says, you're very real. He compliments them. You're very religious, man. You guys really cover your bases. You really care about this stuff. And then he says, for as I walked around and looked carefully. Now notice that. He didn't just come out against as a know-it-all saying, I know the truth, you don't. Believe me, or go to hell. No, he, he comes out and he studies their belief system. He carefully examines this. He learns from them. Okay, what is the structure of their faith? What are these guys up to? So he studies their, their statutes carefully. And then he calls them, I, I studied your objects of worship. Uh, Do Paul think that they're objects of worship? No, he, he, he would see this is demonic. This is a demonic thing. If they're worshiping demons. They just don't know it. That's how. Paul, but they see it as objects of worship, and so he he acknowledges their sincerity by speaking their terms. These objects of worship, they see them as that. And So Paul enters into their world. It's the essence of communication. You've got to enter into the world of another if you're going to be able to speak to them and have any credibility with them. So Paul affirms their intent, affirms their sincerity, even calls these things objects of worship. It almost looks like, in fact, it does look like Paul's endorsing them as objects of worship. Like this is a legitimate way to, to worship God. I'm sure if some came to Christ uh, within a couple of weeks or a year, Paul would have taught them that they aren't really objects of worship. But right now he's speaking their language. And then he says... I even found one with the inscription to an unknown God. Hmm. See, they were so careful that they didn't want to take any God off that they had one to an unknown God. In case there's one or more out there that they don't know about, they want to worship him too. They don't want to take anyone off. So then Paul says, So, you admit that you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, at least with this statue. You're worshiping you know not what. That's what I want to talk to you about. See, Paul, instead of going after the negative, all the beliefs they had wrong, all the practices they had wrong, all the offensive stuff that they had, he could have shot at that, come in there and say, this is this is grotesque, demonic stuff. But instead of going after the negative, he finds the opportunity to build on the one positive thing they had. They had one positive thing. They were sincere, they wanted to cover the bases, and they admit they don't know everything. They admit there might be something out there more than they know about And so for Paul, that's the crack. That's the opening. And now he's going to build his gospel on that. I want to tell you about that unknown God. And then he starts talking about Jesus Christ. Folks, that is the way to do New Testament evangelism. Good newsing. It's not our job to comment on anything negative in a belief system or in a lifestyle that we see. It's not our job. Uh, it's it's not our job to be commentators on all that we disagree with or all that offends us. I don't care what a person's smoking. I don't care what they're drinking. I don't care how they're dressing or how they're not dressing. I don't care who they're sleeping with. I don't care what their entertainment is. Forget about it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Our job is not to go after that. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, As plainly as anyone could say it, It is not our job to judge those outside the church. What business is it of ours to judge those outside the church? How I wish the church in America would nail that one down, make it our first commandment. Don't judge those outside the church. It's just pretty simple. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, God's called us to be ministers of reconciliation who do not hold people's sin against themselves because God doesn't hold our sin against ourselves and we're just returning the compliment. To be a minister of reconciliation is to not hold someone's sin against themselves. That is our job. Our job is to never hold anyone's sin against themselves. Never hold anyone's sin against themselves. In fact, that's the only that's not only our job description, that is our message, isn't it? That's our message. That that the good news is that because of God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and therefore, now if you'll just accept this, he doesn't hold your sins against you. Mercy is available for all. Forgiveness is available for all. The love of God is available for all. The life of God is available for all. Heaven is available for all. No questions asked. Just accept that. That's the good news. That's the good news. One of the things that most grieves me, if I can say it straight here, is, is this recent thing. In the, this is, I think, in the last five years, the thing that's grieved me the most. This group, and you, this may offend some people. I'm sorry, but deal with it. Uh, <laughs> but he, he, a group that is trying to fight for the right, pass a law, so they don't have to serve certain people groups because they offend them. Christians who are saying, I don't want to have to do business with you because I don't agree with you. I don't like your lifestyle. It, 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 it offends me. Um, you know, Jesus partied with the prostitutes and tax collectors. The two worst judge groups in the first century. The worst of the worst. And the Pharisees, of course, those little particularly religious people, they got all offended. Birds of a feather, fox, I get them. Look at Jesus. He's a scoundrel. You know what? But Jesus, who was the one sinless person of the planet, he didn't care. He hung out. He befriended the prostitutes. He went to parties with the prostitutes and the tax collectors. You know, he considered them friends. He actually drew those people to himself. And then he goes and dies for these folks. And even worse than that, he died for us because we're the worst of sinners. So here Jesus is calling him friends, and now his followers are trying to get Caesar to pass the law so they don't have to look at him. They don't have to deal with these folks. What's wrong with this picture? You know, there's something, folks, I don't care how much something offends you, how, how, how it grieves you, how maybe it makes you gag. I don't care what you see in another person. Remember what Jesus taught. Uh, to reconsider your own sin to be a tree trunk compared to that little dust particle that you notice in somebody else's. Just reverse the thing. And then do what Paul did. Look past the sin. Don't hold it against the person. In fact, look past the sin to see the positive intention in the the person's heart. Because there's always a positive intention in a person's heart. And affirm that. And speak their language. And just love them and serve them and look for opportunities. Little cracks in the door that the Spirit might open up where you can begin to share the truth about Jesus Christ. And see, then when you begin to share the love that you've demonstrated We'll begin to give those words some credibility. <laughs> Hallelujah! It's, you know, some of us have found, some of us have found maybe a lot of us have found that the biggest obstacle we face when it comes to sharing Christ naturally with our friends and neighbors, co-workers, uh, is the sad, sad reputation that a lot of his followers have have earned Christ. And I am not—I don't know the lives of the individual followers, so I have nothing to say about that. I'm just talking about a general perception that's out there. Instead of being associated with this love and this beauty and this grace and this mercy, Jesus is associated with intolerant, judgmental, hypocritical religion. The sad thing is that the church was to be the means, is to be the means, by which people are drawn into the kingdom, by the beauty and the love and the grace and the humility of the people of God. But the church of Christ, to a large degree, at least in America, has become the main obstacle to people coming to the kingdom. It's why I honestly, and I'm really being honest here, when people ask me, are, are you a Christian, I don't automatically say, oh, yeah, sure, fine, yeah, well, absolutely. No, I, I usually will say, well, it depends on what that word means. Um, but see, what the, that word doesn't mean, it's supposed to mean Christ-like. It doesn't mean that to a lot of people. And so I don't get to—I don't get to decide what, what words mean to people. I have to use the language that's out there. And so for a lot of people, if the word Christian means, you know, intolerant religious butthead, I'm not going to say, "Yeah, I'm an intolerant religious butthead." Uh, no, I, what I usually say is, I'm a, i am I, I live my life trying to follow the teachings and example of Jesus." And I've had dozens and dozens of conversations with people on planes, and and uh, on subways, and in marketplaces that I know I would not have had. If I would have said yes when they asked me if I was a Christian. Certainly if they ask, are you a born-again Christian? That's really loaded. (laughs) Are you an evangelical? (laughs) Folks, as your pastor, I want to encourage you to be hesitant at calling yourself a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I said this once on a radio station, and all of a sudden the calls lit up. And all these people were, you know, saying, how can you be ashamed of a Christian? You know, he's like, you brought me a Christian. And I said, why would I come out of the gate saying, yeah, I'm a religious, intolerant, hypocritical butthead. Now can I talk to you? you know, it's, I'm going to lose all credibility there. I have to use the words that will mean what I want them to mean. And unfortunately, to a large degree, if, uh, to a certain extent, the word Christians come to mean the opposite of what I want to mean. It's, in fact, I found that one of the best ways to share Christ, if you, if you get a conversation going and you listen to people and you're entering in with them, very frequently, these people have, will share criticisms of the church and wounds of the church and, and their perceptions of it and don't feel the need to defend that. Now, we don't have to defend any religion. That's not our job. In fact, I usually side with them. And, and the reason is because it gives me a chance sometimes to show how different Jesus was from all of that. A couple years ago, on a plane, a lady saw me read a new book about God. She goes, oh, are you a Christian? And I said, well, see, you mean by what the television usually means. Uh, I'm not really comfortable with that term. Uh, I don't try to pass laws against, you know, other people. She goes, oh, good. And so we had a conversation. And she told me this horrendous story of, of being raised in this fundamental southern church and, you know, just, oh, just nasty, nasty stuff. And I empathized with her and I agreed with it. In fact, I was more angry than she was about it. It was just like, oh. And, and see, if I would have answered yes when she asks, are you a Christian? Now, Jesus would be associated with all of that crap she just shared. So she shares all of this nasty religious stuff. We both get angry. Oh, so right? And then I'm able to then say, well, you know, it's really interesting. So if you just read the Gospels and kind of put that all aside, Jesus is not at all like that. She's like, what? Really? Well, look at the way she, he treated the woman at the well who had been married five times. He didn't care. He just loved her. And the woman caught in the act of adultery. You know, and, and, and look at the way he hung out with the prostitutes and tax collectors. That lady was just blown away when I showed her the passages in Luke where he partied with the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And and just look at the way he treated the, the outsiders and the lepers. And the, he let, let the woman who was unclean touch him even though that was against the law. He was a radical rule breaker, you know. And, and then he died on the cross for all sinners, especially for me because I'm the worst of them. And th- that doesn't look at all like the religion of Christianity that she knew. And it opened, it was making the most of a God opportunity because it gave her a chance to consider for the first time in her life, she was like 60 years old, and she'd be. by the time the plane landed, she was in tears, uh, just considering this beautiful Jesus that she had never known because the religion got in the way. Don't buy into the religion. It's the problem, not the solution. Don't defend it. Side with the unbelievers on legitimate criticisms of the religion. We don't have buying into any of the religion. It's the person of Jesus Christ who is beautiful and lovely and gracious and magnificent and life-giving. He's the way to the Father and, and that in Him is eternal life. There's no life in religion, but man, in Jesus Christ. If you can get the real thing, the real, the real Jesus and the real kingdom that looks like Jesus, dying on the cross for the worst of sinners, well, now that will draw people in. Hallelujah. Hallelujah separate the real Jesus from all of the other crap that's out there. And that's what people are hungry for, they really are. Now, I, I've shared this several times here um, in the last couple of weeks. That one of the things we feel called to do at this season of our life as at Woodland Hills is to begin to pour into the, second, the next generation. Because that's where the kingdom revolution is happening all over the globe. Young people are getting a vision of a Jesus-looking God and a Jesus-looking kingdom. And they're seeing how different it is from what we've called church for many centuries and it's beautiful all over the place and so we're pouring into them in a lot of different ways in mentoring uh, skyping uh, email uh, having meetings at houses and all sorts of stuff trying to empower and raise up this this rising young revolution so one of the things we want to be doing is to give them a voice and begin to speak the kingdom from their perspective begin to to, uh, raise up those gifts Uh, for the last year we've had the privilege of having an intern here this wild crazy feisty funky a girl named Stephanie Danielson as one of our interns, and uh, and so I asked her to uh, look at this passage. I'll talk about the first part and ask, would you please share uh, on the second part of this passage? And so would you please give a warm Woodland Hills welcome to Stephanie Danielson, the debut message. Bring it, girl. Bring it. All right.
1: Hello, Woodland Hills. I'm so pumped to be here. Wild, funky, feisty. How can you go wrong with that introduction? (laughs) Crazy. Um, In Him we live and move and have our being. What an amazing, amazing place to start. And what to, uh, when we think about sharing the good news. So, Greg's been talking about what it's like when we go out and we act and show outrageous love in the name of Jesus. And that's the first thing we do. The first thing we do when we want to share the news is we go out into the world and we look like Jesus. We find ways that we can bless people and that we can love on them and the Spirit will open up opportunities for us to be able to speak the, um, the gospel to them. And the words that we use are important. Here, we say, here Paul says, Let your words be filled with grace and seasoned with salt so that you may always know how to answer everyone. So what does it look like to have our words filled with grace and seasoned with salt? The words that we use, they're important, because words are not universal. And words mean different things to different people. Just like Greg cautioned us earlier, the word Christian is a good example of this. It would be great if every time you said the word Christian, the, the thought that would arise from a person is a humble, self, self-sacrificing, loving, Jesus-looking person. But unfortunately, that is not true. And I think, I truly believe that that stereotype can be broken down if we are just to go out and love and bless people and look like Jesus does. And once we do that, those stereotypes will break down and it won't it won't look bad to call yourself a Christian. So think of the words that you use. Words sometimes spoken with the best intentions can have the power to cause uncertainty or confusion or worse pain. They evoke feeling and emotion, and they can trigger memories. And so Paul tells us, fill your words with grace. Words, um, I think there are just a few things we can remember that will help us to fill our words with grace. Remember that the spirit who led you to the person that was in need of the gospel was the same spirit that led you to, to that loving act, that outrageous act of love that would be able to bless that person or to help them heal or to recognize their brokenness. So when we go to spread the gospel, when we get to share the gospel, when we get to use the words, we know that that same spirit is leading our conversation. So let him lead. He is our helper and he is faithful. And when we are in tune with his spirit and we slow down in our conversations, he will give us the words that we need. So listen to the spirit. Next, remember that when we are doing this, we're in a conversation. The person that we're, we're giving the gospel to here is somebody that we've loved on, that we've gotten to know, that we've built a relationship with. And so we're sharing the good news in a conversation. And conversations, we know, involve both listening and talking. And sometimes listening is the best news a person can receive. Because how often is it that at work or at home, they are told that what they have to say doesn't matter? That their brokenness and their hurting isn't worth their, anybody else's time to listen to? Um, about a little over 10 years ago, I was having a rough time, a rough time, worse than that, and ended up addicted to cocaine. And I had to go into rehabilitation. And when you do this, um, you are required to go to 12-step programs or 12-step meetings every week. And I remember the first time I had to go because I thought, what are these people going to be doing? What am I going to have to say? What's going to be going on? And I was just so nervous about what the environment would be like. And so I walk into this room and there's probably 20 or 30 people and they're all sitting in a circle and we sit there for two hours, and each one of us gets to talk. We get to talk about our brokenness, and how hard life is, and how we've gotten to where we are today. And we get to talk about the ways people in the world have hurt us, and everybody else listens. And this is so powerful that people have lived their lives and have claimed sobriety because of these meetings? How much does that say about our ability just to sit and listen to somebody? So often we think that the gospel is about talking. You listen and I'll talk about Jesus. But I think it has a lot to do with the opposite. Why don't I listen to what's gone on in your life? And then you can tell, and then I'll tell you. And finally, just remember that the Spirit Can and will lead us to speak words that are filled with fruit bearing with his fruit. So they should be patient and kind words and we should speak with compassion and give the other person the benefit of the doubt. Show them grace because like Greg said, people have been hurt by the church. People have been hurt by Christians and it's not just individual Christians, but just as a whole. We haven't done that great sometimes. And so you be the Christian in that conversation that allows that person to be mad. And even when they get mad, maybe have the heart to apologize. For, uh, uh, forgive. Be that person that produces good fruit in your conversations. So we, these are how we speak words filled with grace. And then Paul says we're supposed to bring words that are seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. Fully is seasoned with salt. So the the way that I can best envision what Paul means here when he says seasoned with salt is that he's telling us to bring the flavor. Bring the flavor to the conversation. Bring the flavor to the table. Imagine that you're going to a dinner party, and it's going to be a weird dinner party, but the only thing they're going to serve is mashed potatoes. And the guest asks you to bring the toppings. You're supposed to bring the seasoning to mashed potatoes. What would happen if you showed up and you didn't have any butter, or any salt, or pepper, or cheese, or sour cream, or gravy, if that's what you prefer? What would happen is that would be bringing bad news. Because mashed potatoes, are are without any toppings, are bad news. They don't have any flavor to them. And so, we need to, like our conversations, bring the flavor to the conversations. In history and in our culture, Religious people can sometimes be um, stereotyped as dull or boring. And I think when we look around this place, that is obviously not true, right? Look at Greg. Last thing we say about him is boring or dull, right? (laughs) But sometimes we become so comfortable within the four walls of our church. And that's what our culture tells us, right? Seek comfort. Comfort is the best thing we can find. But as kingdom citizens... We are called to be countercultural. We are called to go out and be part of the world. We are all called to spread the good news, which means we go out and we cross paths with non-believers, and then we build friendships with them. We look to find ways that we can love on them and heal them and pray for them and bless them right where they're at. We look for where God is moving in their life already, and we stand next to God and we agree with him. We say, we will help you in this. We will move in your will, God. So remember, when we go out to do this, our Christian communities are so important. They should be our families. And they are a priority. But that doesn't mean we isolate ourselves within the church walls, it doesn't mean we insulate ourselves with only kingdom friends. We should always be working in someone's life who is a non-believer, just looking for the ways that God is already working in their lives, building relationships with these people. So, words seasoned with salt and fill of grace, and Paul's last words here in verse 6 are this, We do all this, the spreading of the good news, first starting with our actions, then the words, so that we may know how to answer everyone. And I think this is a tricky little phrase. What he's saying to us here is, to spread the good news, we first demonstrate outrageous love to non-believers. Then we enter into conversation as the Spirit allows for the opportunity to arise, using words filled with grace and seasoned with salt we do all this so that we may know how to answer everyone. But don't we do this, all that, so that we can invite somebody to church? Don't we do all that so that we can bring another person into these doors? Or into the, you know, I got another believer. But I think if we think about this the way that in the context that Greg and I have brought it today, in the way that Paul would have understand what it meant to share the good news of Jesus, he would have known that through this process, we would have built relationships. And when we build relationships, that means we're having conversations with these people. We're getting to know their families. We know what they've been through. We know, we know what they need. And we know where their gifts are too. And so when we get to know them, We will have built a relationship so that we will be able to know how to answer them. I also think that Paul is calling us to a higher level of maturity, a higher level of growth. He is calling us to be disciples of Christ. And that means that when we go to share the good news, we know what the good news is. That we know how to tell people, really tell people, why do I call Jesus Lord? Why do I call Jesus Savior? He is calling us to be able to defend the gospel that we call truth. I think it's so important that we know how to answer everyone. And it's not an easy thing to do. But you never know when that opportunity is going to arise, that a question is going to come towards you, and you need to know how to answer it. I have a friend and she's been my friend for, for over 10 years, great friend of mine. And she's not a believer. And part of it is for this reason we've been talking about with the word Christian and, how, and there are some things difficult for her to understand. But I've been praying for her, and I've tried to, on different occasions to speak with her about the gospel, and nothing's ever landed. And about five years ago, she had a little girl. And when that little girl went to preschool, she picked a Christian preschool to send her to. And so all of a sudden, this little girl's coming home, and she's asking her mom all these questions. And her mom didn't know the answer. So this was before I even started seminary. They would call me and say, Pastor Stephanie, we have a question for you. And if you know what it's like to answer little kids' questions about God, those are some of the hardest questions you have to answer. And so knowing how to answer everyone started to make sense to me in that relationship. I think one of the hardest questions she asked was they had just bought a new kid's Bible and they're reading through it. And my friend calls me and she says, Stephanie, I don't know what to do. On the third chapter, God floods the earth and kills everybody. What am I supposed to tell my daughter about that? (laughs) I didn't have a good answer, so if any of you do, just come up afterwards. So this is what it is. This is what it is to go out and spread the good news. We are called to be good newsers. And we can do that. Good newsing is a fun thing. We should look for opportunities that the Spirit makes aware to us. I think even in our community here, if we were more aware, if we were more attentive to what was going on in each of our neighborhoods, if we went as far to engage and were active in those neighborhoods, how much more could we grow the kingdom of God? What's more beautiful as kingdom citizens than to see the love of Jesus encompassing and spreading out for the world to know? That's what should bring about in us this, this love of Jesus that we want to go out and spread. And the opportunities are out there. Woodland Hills, you are such an amazing community, and I am so, so blessed to be part of it. Um, it's, it's just been an amazing time that I've had here. I just want to close in prayer. And if there's anybody here who hasn't, hasn't ever had the opportunity to know Jesus, I would just invite you to come up here um, and to pray with one of our, our prayer team. And I'd invite the prayer team up here right now, too. If you have any needs at all, please come up and pray with these people. They love to pray, and they, they, pray, they pray over us all the time. So please come up and pray. Um, Heavenly Father, I just pray a blessing over our entire community that we would be more aware and more attentive to the Spirit's leading to opportunities that may arise where we have the encouragement of the Spirit to spread the news of Jesus. Jesus came and he showed us an amazing love. And Lord, we want to go out and we want to demonstrate that same love to others. And so guide us. Be our direction and help us to see those opportunities. Lord, bless everybody in their week. Keep us safe. Keep us whole. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.